Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hi, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and today I have a little bit of a unique episode for you. I'm talking with Chris Highland, aka the friendly freethinker, and while we do follow the typical framework for these episodes, I share a lot more about my current beliefs and spiritual ideas than usual. I've been relatively tight-lipped about my own beliefs so far in part because I don't know that they matter that much. My goal is not for anyone to try to follow my beliefs, and I'm no longer in the business of conversion. (laughs) It's also in part because I don't want to open myself up to that criticism. My beliefs are ever-evolving, and I enjoy having the freedom to shift and change them as I learn and grow without having to account for that publicly. Can you tell I have anxiety and overthink a lot yet? (laughs) With all that said, I am still very excited to share this conversation with you all. I hope you enjoy hearing us light up in conversation as much as we enjoyed experiencing it. Chris has a beautiful story, and I am inspired by the work he's doing in the world. He has many thoughtful writings, which you can find on his website. I've linked it in the show notes for you. One in particular stood out to me from our conversation. It's from a piece he wrote for the Asheville Citizen Times called Saying Goodbye to the Jesus I Once Knew. He writes, As he, Jesus, became more human, I became more human. No longer an object of faith, an exalted human being demanding worship and belief, he came down from the clouds. I grew to understand the value of a wise teacher and what it means to be a wise student pursuing wisdom and taking responsibility rather than heeding a divine authority. I can relate to another human who shares my humanity. I can't relate to a transcendent God. Then he left, and so did I. No longer found in a church or a religion, this Jesus walked on the edges crossed borders, ignored barriers of belief. He walked away from the church. He was never a member anyway, and so did I. 
At that stage, even after years of ministry, I sensed I was following him out the door, beyond the artificial walls constructed with creeds, theologies, and scriptures. Tradition, handed down authority, held no more power over him or me. We left together. What a statement. I remember so vividly what it felt like to realize that I wasn't seeing, hearing, or experiencing radical love for humanity and the world around me in my own faith. The formerly protective walls of the church started to feel more like prison walls, keeping me from experiencing the depth of humanity and the beauty of seeing and experiencing things as they are instead of trying to fit them and my reaction to them, into an acceptable, church-pleasing mold. I have a hard time believing in a Jesus who wants to limit creation. A creation that, if you believe in the three as one trinity, is his own. The world is just too big, beautiful, and complex to fit into a singular way of thinking, believing, behaving, and understanding. But why do I know? (laughs) If you'd like to read more of Chris's work, you're in luck. You can find his books, essays, blog posts, and articles on his website. He also teaches a variety of classes at UNC Asheville and beyond, but UNC Asheville is my alma mater. His first book, which marked a major bend in the trail for him to a more naturalistic worldview, is called Meditations of John Muir. His last book, Humanist Meditations, reveals how far down the trail away from faith he has traveled. His next book, which will be published in the next few months, is Rambling Reflections for Irreverent Rebels and is a collection of short essays on secularism and faith. I'm personally really looking forward to this one. (laughs) Irreverent Rebel may be my new favorite title for myself. And finally... I just want to take a moment to share how grateful I am for all the love and support I've received from you all. This podcast has changed my life in so many ways, and I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to host it. So many of you have left reviews, followed along with my spotty Instagram posting, and sent me messages of encouragement. And you all have especially been kind to me as I've been sick over the past six weeks and three episodes. I am so ready for my voice to be back to normal, but I appreciate your encouragement and your well wishes. I just love every bit of it. All right, I'll stop keeping you from Chris now. Let's get into the episode. Thank you so much for being here today. I have really been looking forward to our conversation since we met, and I think it's going to be a great time. I know it will be. I know it will be. <laughs> thank, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's been really neat uh, thinking about our conversation since we first met, and I think our listeners are going to enjoy your story a lot. So would you please share with our listeners a little bit of your backstory, kind of set the scene for us, you know, how you got into the religion you were a part of and what it was like for you? Sure. 
Well, it's always, uh, I guess the story always changes slightly when I tell it because sometimes uh, people want the um, the nutshell version. And I think it's all kind of nutty anyway. So it just sort of, uh, it takes different forms. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you the um, the medium medium length story. Um, yeah, I, I uh, you know, everybody starts out this way. I grew up in the whatever tradition, uh, but I did, I did. I was um, raised in the Presbyterian church uh, in the Seattle, the greater Seattle area. And my parents always took me to church. And I still remember uh, when I was about 10 years old, I guess I achieved something in Sunday school. So I was able to stand up in front of the entire congregation, recite the the hundredth Psalm, which I still remember by heart, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all that, you know. And uh, they rewarded me with a nice, shiny black leather Bible. So that was the Bible I carried for many years. And that was my that was my reward for uh, memorizing one of the Psalms. Then uh, as time went by there in the Seattle area, I really got involved with um, with the church a little deeper, uh, finished the communicants class and that, all that stuff. So I, I was uh, approved for moving forward in the church and uh, started going to youth group meetings. Uh, those were a lot of fun. And then a girlfriend of mine invited me to her Baptist church youth group. And that kind of opened my vision a little bit more to another another understanding of of how to experience Christianity. And it was much more, interestingly enough, it was much more Bible-oriented, much more personalistic in terms of uh, personal interaction, as well as more of a connection, I guess, with with God and, and uh, took that more seriously. But somewhere along the line, before I even got there, as a young teen, I watched one of Billy Graham's crusades on my little black and white screen. And, um, you know, when he did the altar call at the end and the just as I am without one plea thing, I gave my heart to Jesus and uh, Jesus came into my room and filled me with great love and forgiveness. Uh, so yeah. that was that was when I was a, an early teen. Those altar calls are very effective. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose, I don't know if it's ironic, but years later, I think I was entering college, but years later, I was in a choir at a Billy Graham crusade, and it was in Seattle, and Billy Graham was there, and and I was able to sing in an 8,000-voice choir. Wow. And I bet that, that was magical. Was, that was something else. That was, yeah. that was inspiring. So, um, and ironically also, that um, now that we live here in North Carolina, uh, Billy Graham and his empire is right down the road from us here. So that's kind of comes full circle. Yeah. So <laughs> you can tell already that this story just starts branching out in different directions. But uh, let me just say that when I got into that Baptist group, uh, felt very much a part of that and realized that Christianity was more than just 
Presbyterian. And then I had a girlfriend who was Jewish. So I started realizing that, you know, faith is more than just Christianity uh, and became a youth group leader, learned how to play the guitar, did a lot of singing. Uh, That was a lot of fun. And then one of my friends said, well, you ought to come to this other little house church group meeting. Uh, And and, uh, so I did. And they were speaking in tongues. And he said, well, you really need to experience this. Be full of the Holy Spirit. So I did that, spoke in tongues, did that whole thing. And about the same time, some of us were getting involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. So we were we were witnessing, we were sharing the gospel everywhere, and then we started speaking in tongues. So we, we were covering the whole landscape of, of Christianity, I think, Christian experience at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were kind of deciding, well, where are we going to go to college? So I went to uh, Seattle Pacific, which is a free Methodist, conservative, evangelical college in Seattle. So I went there started studying more of the Bible and church history and all these things. It was exciting time. Mm-hmm. I really thought, well, I want to learn more about, about God, about my faith, about the Bible. Uh, I took a year of Greek. So I'm studying wow. Greek in college. You know, it's it pretty, exciting. Yeah, it was cool. I, I, I thought, wow, I can really read the original stuff now and, um, and get to know get to know God better in God's mm. original language, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I found out later was Hebrew. But yeah, uh, and Aramaic. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'll call all that stuff. Uh, so, so what really saved me, and I kind of put it in this frame it this way sometimes. What really saved me at the evangelical college was deciding to study philosophy, mm. and philosophy was this whole expansive field, worldviews, many worldviews. And it was all about asking questions and not necessarily having answers. So I began to emerge from the more narrow views Mm -hmm. and still studying religion, got my degree in philosophy and religion. It was a dual degree. Uh, and decided to go on to to seminary from there in California. So I did, and and that was a Presbyterian seminary, but it was connected with the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, which was just a, g- a great spectrum of of uh, theological institutions. Yeah. Uh, so I was able to take classes from 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 Jews and Catholics and Buddhists and uh, just people across the spectrum there. So it really was a rich experience for me. And of course, when you go to seminary, you think, well, I guess I'm going to go into ministry. I guess I'm Mm -hmm. going to become a pastor of a church, which most people were doing. And that was the track that they were on. And that was interesting to me. But during seminary, I started attending a synagogue that was on campus. And part of my work as a teacher in a local uh, private school with adults having uh, developmental disabilities, um, I started taking them to a local Catholic church. So I was going to Catholic churches and synagogues more than Presbyterian churches. Mm-hmm. And that was just a wonderful, rich time for me. I really I loved that. Um, and it really kind of set me on a course of, 
of the interfaith work that that drew me into that more inclusive recognition, not just recognition, but a celebration of the of the diversity of of worldviews and beliefs and understandings of the stuff that I'd heard about since I was a kid. You know, yeah. this God stuff, this Jesus stuff, this Bible stuff, and realizing that well, there are other scriptures, there are other views of God, um, other ways of understanding what it means to to follow the way of Jesus, and and that really inspired me to uh, to finish seminary, to go on to chaplaincy work. I don't know how much you want me to talk about that right now, but that that really was. I found your chaplaincy work and the street work that you did really fascinating. So please yeah. feel free to share about that too. Sure. Yeah. Well, I finally got to that point in the story. It feels good. <laughs> get, get the early part done. Uh, yeah. But all of that was really set, literally setting the groundwork for me in terms of what to build on the foundation of, of what my faith was emerging, uh, evolving to become. And it was, it was evolving into something I didn't even know what it would become, what, the sh- what shape this was going to take. Uh, because it was so different, uh, I, there was a brand new chaplaincy opening up at the county jail uh, just north of San Francisco, uh, Marin County. And in that uh, big, beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright-designed uh, building had had a jail in it, and that's where I worked for ten years as a county jail chaplain, the very first one. And what was so wonderful about that is it was an interfaith chaplaincy from the very beginning, and I was the first interfaith chaplain that that county had ever had, and that the jail had ever seen. Uh, so I was able to do this thing called chaplaincy, whatever that was going to be. And what I found early on was I needed to kind of put all that education, all that experience of faith and religion uh, kind of in the back, put it back a little bit and not be a preacher not really be there to teach, but to be a listener and to practice something that that became foundational for all of my chaplaincy years, and that's presence, just simply being present with people in their situation, listening, trying to be empathetic. And if I was asked to try to help people along the way, to encourage them, mostly, and connect people with resources if I, if I could. So the time in the jail was, was just almost overwhelming to me yeah. uh, because it was a world within the world that I had never experienced before. And so most of the people in that county jail, uh, the high percentage of people were uh, non-white and that was very different for me. Uh, the county was mostly white. I had grown up in a mostly white area of Seattle. And it was just a cultural, religious enlightenment, I suppose you could say. Um, just an awakening for me to, to mm-hmm. see that, that people are, are so different and that I can walk into difference 
and appreciate that. And the more I could listen, the more I could learn. And I, I sometimes called it the seminary of the jail, or it was the it, it was a new experience of of religious education that came from these the board of directors who were from different religious traditions. And they hired me to be the chaplain in the jail uh, for everyone. So I, I often told people that I was a chaplain, that I was, as a chaplain, I was representing the compassion of the faith communities or even just mm-hmm. of the community itself by being present in there. So I held seven different uh, gatherings each week in the county jail system so with men and women, even in protective custody, even in maximum security, uh, minimum security. Uh, we had some wonderful times. It was great. I brought a guitar in there. We were yeah. singing songs all the time. I love that. Yeah, a lot of singing and great, great uh, voices in there. I mean, we yeah. we could have we gone on the road if we could have <laughs> like, let everybody out. You know? <laughs> We could have gone on the road. So, yeah, it was it was the music. It was discussion, a lot of discussion, um, a lot of just welcoming people into a space where uh, oftentimes people in the jail inmates had never experienced other religious perspectives, other ways of seeing themselves and the world. You know, maybe they had been raised in in traditions that were saying. You know, you're a sinner and you're in jail because you're a sinner and right. all these kinds of things. And I was presenting something different. I was saying, well, you're a human being and it doesn't really matter what you've done right now, right here and now. It's about you as a as a human being who has value and something to offer. And I'm learning from you, too. And don't look to me and you know, people like to look at chaplains and ministers and priests and others and say, well, would you talk to God for me? You know, would would you pray for me? Would you, you know, lay your hands on me, bless me or something? And yeah, I did all that stuff. But it really, it was a matter of saying, well, I don't have any special connection. You, you, you have a connection too. Mm. And so oftentimes it was just telling people, well, you know, God's present with you in here as well as with me. And so we're, you know, uh, you're never alone. Yeah. And that kind of presence work was was really what formed my entire chaplaincy ministry work. And it wasn't Presbyterian. I was a Presbyterian minister at the time because mm-hmm. I did get ordained, but it was more about being being a human being myself. And being aware of my own my own faults, my own mistakes in life, and and then being around people who sometimes had done horrendous things, or at least were accused of horrendous things. Mm-hmm. And I was able to be at that point, I was able to get locked into the cells with people. They don't they don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but but um Back in those days, I was it was so new to have a chaplain coming into that county jail system that uh, depending on the staff at the time, they would just lock me in a cell and even with the in the women's unit, mm-hmm. lock me in there for an hour or more. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and you know then i would have to uh somehow reach the deputy to say come and let me out come let me out <laughs> i can imagine it's that. much different today <laughs> oh yeah it's very yeah. different now so so those times were very powerful and you know when you're locked in with people you're also locked into their lives a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. and you you see people face to face you're touching people that people in the wider community don't want to even see let alone mm-hmm. touch right and i get to hear their stories and then also get to sing with them pray with them be present with them and after about 10 years of doing that a friend of mine who was a street chaplain uh, was leaving. And he said, Chris, you'd be great out here in the streets. And a lot of the same people that we were working with, you know, he was working on the streets. He was an Episcopal priest. And he he was working with them on the street as an interfaith chaplain. I was in the jail as an interfaith chaplain. So we uh, we kind of we kind of switched. He went off to work in a prison and I went to the streets. And I did that for another 10 years or so. And it was, you know, it was more of the same, but it was out in the fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was released, you know, I got released um, out there. And I still saw some of the same people because jails tend to be revolving doors. Yeah. And so people were in and out and people had their addiction issues, mental health issues, just, just struggles with poverty, um, mm. Uh, racial tensions, all kinds of stuff that went on, abuse situations. So, so I finally was able to really be out working with families and people of various ages. Spent a lot of time at St. Vincent de Paul. It was a free dining room in town that tended to be where people came because it was a place to eat and a place yeah. for community. And that's where we started a lot of our programs uh, to, to gather people together. So it was the same sort of thing. It's like we're having these interfaith gatherings and it's not there's not Christian. It's not based on Christianity. It's based on humanity. Mm-hmm. So that that was what we we started doing. And then we had volunteers from the community. We had, you know, some pretty wealthy people would come in and and sit with us and some business people and uh, priests and rabbis and Buddhist priests and all kinds of people. And and it just even became richer for me and our whole experience to find our way that might be f- about faith or might not be about faith. It was about having faith in each other and learning to to cope, to handle the terrible things sometimes, uh, the, the risks, the, the dangers of being out in the street and, and handle that in a way that was, I don't know, was a, a sense of, of being cared about, you know, learning that people are, are already being compassionate with each other out there. And mm. so, as I said before, you know, in seminary, you kind of learn how to be a preacher. You know, right. you learn how to use your mouth a lot, you know, and speak <laughs> a lot and you know, when I was ordained, you know, ordained in the Presbyterian tradition, you're called a minister of word and sacrament. You know, your first the first thing you're you're ordained to is words. Interesting. And yeah. 
And so where do a lot of those words come from? Well, let's get it from the Bible. So we're a lot of Bible stuff, a lot of quoting ancient scriptures. And that, you know what, that's when another emergence was happening for me, another kind of growth point evolution, I suppose, that was happening for me, which was realizing, you know, the Bible still has some interesting things in it and some good lessons, but so does the Dhammapada and mm. the Tao and the Quran. And other other scriptures of the world that um, most of us don't have any connection with, and we never hear those. And let alone meeting people from those various traditions, those other backgrounds. And that's what this expansiveness. It's kind of interesting because I always think of it as expand expanding my view and experience, but it's also being more inviting and inclusive of all those diverse perspectives and experiences. And once again, being present to listen and pay attention. So that's really, those are some of those growth points for me and and emerging times that brought me to the point where I realized, you know what, the Bible can stay on the shelf for the most part. And it's not so much about faith or you know, having some kind of religious perspectives and opinions, but it's about being with people and being a teacher while learning. Constantly, constantly give and take, a constant cycle of of experiencing uh, the depths of humanity, the heights of humanity. I mean, there was so many beautiful moments in both of those chaplaincies, all kinds of really beautiful moments, uh, performing weddings. Uh, You know, strangely enough, we did so many memorial services and had memorial uh, processions through town. We planted a tree from the Buddhist center. We planted the tree in front of the Catholic Mission Church, biggest church in town. And we had a procession to do that. And it was all to honor our friends in the community of the street. Uh, So those kind of moments were were beautiful. They were heart wrenching. They were they were they filled your heart. They did all of that stuff, you know, because it was it was really touching the pulse of of humanity. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm getting there. I'm I'm telling you the story. It's <laughs> a great story. I I love that humanity played such a huge role in your own spiritual transformation, and that it was this reflexive experience that you had. Mm-hmm. I I think there are a couple of things that I see in talking with people who transform their faith and move into new ones or who leave their faith altogether to embrace something different. And that's either data. So data and like realities about scripture start moving them out and and they start seeing inconsistencies or they start learning about Aramaic translations versus Greek translation. All that stuff starts to move them out or it's experiences with other people. Mm -hmm. So whether Mm -hmm. that's encounters with people in the queer community and then realizing maybe they don't want to demonize them because they're actually really great friends and wonderful people. And, you know, or in your case, just getting to see how diverse humanity is. Sure. And I think that is something that strikes a chord with me because Mm -hmm. it's really difficult uh, with all the people I've seen and met in my life and in my travels 
I can't see all of them sitting in a Baptist church and getting something out of that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. or even a Presbyterian or Methodist or anything like that. It's just individual sects of faiths yeah. just aren't enough for everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important and neat part of your story is that you got to experience that for so many years and really yeah. see how big the world is and how gray it really is. This this sure. idea of black and white just doesn't really exist when you're actually out in the world living no. in it. And no. I, I love that part of your story. I think it's such a huge lesson that we all end up learning at some point that maybe uh-huh. things aren't as cut and dry as we think they are in our minds or as we might have right. learned. Right. Yeah, that, you that's well said. I um you know, I kind of skipped over it, I suppose, but you know, a pretty major uh point for me was realizing that the the distractions of the church distractions of religious dogma and um the as I said, the scriptures can be great distractions. Our our belief systems can can separate us from other people and become distractions. And I finally decided in 2001, I finally, my first book had just come out on John Muir, a collection of of John Muir's uh, wisdom, naturalistic wisdom. And I, at that point, I was still working as a chaplain and I thought, you know, I really don't, I really don't need to be or want to be an ordained minister anymore. And all those years of working through that, going to the Christian college, Mm -hmm. going to seminary, getting my Master of Divinity degree, getting ordained, working in ministry. Um, I was also uh, a parish associate in a Presbyterian church for 10 years during that time. So I I wasn't totally disconnected from from the church. And and yet in working in these nonprofits and these chaplaincies with, with people who were representing very different perspectives. And that became the kind of ministry, the kind of servant, service person that I wanted to be. That defined it. So I I thought, well, you know, this whole thing of being a Presbyterian minister or ordained minister uh, just didn't cut it for me anymore. And I didn't really see the church by and large, really getting that involved and supporting the kind of work that we were doing. Yeah. You know, when I was working on the street, I was hiring people from the street to be my chaplain assistants. And oftentimes they were the ones who they had the personal experience of living outside and they could, they could relate so, so much better. So I, I brought them on the team. We had a chaplain team and that felt great because it wasn't just about me. I wasn't. It wasn't just well. Chris is the chaplain. So well, right. Chris is the chaplain, but these other people are chaplains too. They don't have the degrees. They don't have all those things. They don't have the distractions mm-hmm. of having some kind of institutional thing be behind you saying yes, we bless you. So I, in 2001, I went to the Presbytery, which was a gathering of pastors and lay leaders um, in the same location. This is in California, in the same location where I had been ordained or at least accepted for ordination. And I stood up in front of all of them and I, and I read my statement saying why I was leaving the church, why I was giving up my ordination 
And one of the lines that I used, which kind of blew some minds, I suppose, is I said, I'm following Jesus out the door of the oh. church. Mm. And I and I said, I don't think that he would be welcomed in in the Presbyterian church, in your church, in your church, whoever's church. That's not the Jesus that I follow. Well, that's mm. how I said it those years ago. I I might say it differently now, but but really this it was really clear to me, partly because a lot of pastors, church pastors, would tell me privately, they'd say, Well, Chris, I think you're you're really doing the work of of Jesus on the streets. Mm. You know, you're going to jails. You, you're, this is what Jesus, like. and I could, I could almost hear that they were saying, gee, I wish I was doing that instead of doing, you know, being in the pulpit every, right. every week. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it, that's that distraction part. So I was able to just say, okay, I'm no longer having, I'm no longer beholden at all to the Presbyterian church or really to any church. I am beholden to the people I serve, the people who are have become my community on, on the streets, at St. Vincent de Paul, in the parks, at campsites, in the shelters, you know, on street corners, on, on sitting on a bench, you know, or in a tent on a hillside with somebody. You know, that that presence kind of stuff, that's all that mattered to me anymore. And it was so delightful to be able to say to people, I am here for you, and I'm not representing any particular religion. You know, I am I am representing the the humanistic care and concern and compassion of the wider community. And we had people on our board who who weren't necessarily religious, didn't really represent any particular synagogue or mosque or temple or church. They were there because they just they cared about people. And they said, "We want we want somebody out there with uh, with with these folks that we we don't really understand that well." So yeah, I, you know, I guess it's no surprise then that I finally came to the point where I I said, "Well, what am I going to call myself?" You know, yeah. particularly, particularly when I when I moved away from chaplaincy to I did some I directed a shelter emergency shelter for a few years, uh, then I went on to manage senior housing for uh, independent seniors who were kind of you know in a, a lower economic bracket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was great. I did that for a, a number of years, but so. In that process, you know, there's still this emerging going on where I'm kind of thinking, well, do I really believe any of this stuff anymore? And how connected am I with any religious religious groups? And I really found that humanism, the the philosophy of of humanity, uh, really made sense to me. And that is not to deny nature, because to me, you know, the understanding our connection with nature. Is is really has become the foundation of everything for me. Yes, our interconnection with the natural world. So that's why my first book on on John Muir really he became kind of a secular saint for me in some ways, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. along with Thoreau and Emerson and Margaret Fuller and some other people. So I I found that the philosophy of humanism made a lot of sense because it was essentially saying. We are responsible for our lives. We are responsible 
for what for what happens in the human community. Mm. It we cannot look outside of ourselves for salvation. We cannot look outside of ourselves into some supernatural right. realm for for somebody to come and help us to you know, I understand the human need to feel cared for and to have an overseer or great parent in the sky to to care about that. And I and I'll, I don't make I don't make light of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people if people have a prayer um, life and uh, devotional life and you know are following a, a path of faith, that's that's fine. But my concern is how human is it? How um, are you willing to take responsibility for your own life and for what's going on in your community and what's going on around you? Yeah. You know, or is your faith, your religious uh, convictions, is that a distraction from being the best human being that you can be? And right. if it's, if it is, then it's you know it, maybe it's not healthy, maybe it's not helpful. Um, right for others and and that's that's what matters to me and so overall uh, through that i found the 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 free thought tradition the the tradition the, the secular tradition of free thinking that makes a lot of sense to me so that's why I, these days i call myself a a free thinking humanist i teach classes uh, quite often and give give talks and what i try to focus on is it's okay to be secular Secular is not a bad word. Right. No, it means here. It means here and now and right. our responsibility for here and now. And there may be another realm somewhere. There may be another world. There may be, there may be something out there. But we don't know. Right. We don't know. We have to be agnostic about that kind of thing. But uh, re- regardless of whether we choose a faith tradition or not, or choose to walk away from a, tr- a tradition, it's really a matter of, yeah, you have the choice. And you, right. there are alternatives. Yes. There are alternatives. If you, if you feel like you don't have an alternative and you're only presented one view in life, one thing to commit your life to, one book, you know, one faith, what does it say? One, one faith, one baptism. You know, I mean, it's, you know, that's all I was presented with as a as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, there's there's one religion that's Christianity. There's one kind of Christianity. It's called Presbyterian, and that's all. Yeah, but then but then ex- experiencing all these different people and communities, and you know, having a Jewish girlfriend, and 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 then you know, becoming involved in in evangelical groups and Pentecostal groups, and then in college. Um, having all these different philosophies and world religions, studying world religions. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful in a Christian college. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty remarkable because it's yeah. not the Christian college I attended. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, I love what you're saying because when I think about fundamentalism and the type of college that I went to and the tradition that I grew up in, the goal of it was to isolate you, right? to keep you in as small of a bubble as possible and to keep you from experiencing anything outside of that 
because then you might be tempted to stray from this very specific, they love to focus on there's a narrow way to know God. There's the narrow way to heaven. And they tried to help you stay on that narrow path by creating uh, this really intense dogma, really, to try to keep you in line and then scare you into a specific way of being. But Mm -hmm. something when you get to know people outside of that, even just a little bit, you know, I came face to face with someone in college who had an experience at a sermon that broke her. Hmm. And when I got to see how that dogma was affecting someone who had a real life experience, it was a game changer. It broke the whole mm-hmm. system down for me. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I'm like, well, if she doesn't fit, then I don't fit either. And yeah. neither does anyone else. Like, you know, right. it's when it's that limited, how can it possibly be for the whole world? It's not. For God so loved the world, if you mm-hmm. wear pants mm-hmm. as a woman and you're not accepted anymore, mm-hmm. that's a yes. very, that is extraordinarily narrow and cannot possibly be loving if that's yeah. the case. Mm-hmm. And so I just really struggled mm-hmm. with that. And so I appreciate and resonate so much with the humanist ideal, yeah. the idea yeah. that it's a big world out there full of lots of kinds of people and community and creating community with each other and trying to see each other more holistically instead of through Mm -hmm. a lens. It's a game changer and it has certainly changed my life for the better. And Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. all these transformative moments you've had in your life too, right around that same idea. And it's such a beautiful thing. I love it. I love that it's such a big part of your story and that you're now writing and teaching about it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's really great. Yeah, yeah. It it um it has been a great passageway, I guess, for me uh, into teaching. I've been teaching over the years, but but really to be able to do that more here on the UNCA, the, the University of North Carolina campus, oh, that's and a my few other, yeah, a few that. other places. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm at the Reuter Center, so it's mostly older older adults and people who really want to to continue their lifelong education, which I would hope that all of us would would want that. You know, <laughs> yeah, lifelong to, learning. To keep learning. And you know, it doesn't doesn't you get a degree or something and you, that's not you know, that's not the, the end of education at all. It should no. never end. So so I love teaching because I learn more and that's what it's about. There's a great saying I learned even at the evangelical college that I went to. Uh, there was a little line that said, the greatest teacher is the one who teaches students to be self-taught, mm. to be self-taught. You teach people to be self-taught. You yeah. know, you, you, you instill in people the, the, the thrill, the desire, the, the uh, excitement, adventure, of of continuing to learn Mm. and you know that hopefully that starts when we're children and just continues throughout our lives and you know the as you were mentioning you know the people people who want to put kind of the guardrails around us or the box and say well this is what what goodness is morality is uh how to be a good person all that stuff Mm -hmm. um they're missing the point. They're missing the point that, that all of that, our, our humanity, our connection with nature, you can't put that in a box. And you can't no. put that, you know, and, and put limits on that. 
and say, well, you can only go this far and please don't think about those things. You shouldn't think about those things. And you shouldn't, you don't go there with those thoughts because that's doubts. And don't ask those questions because those questions will, will be disturbing to, to your faith and all these kinds of things. Well, I learned way back when in studying philosophy, and I, I just taught a class on uh, on the Roman Stoic uh, Seneca, and mm-hmm. and Seneca was a perfect person for this too. And that was, you know, he lived at the time of Jesus, and he was he was a questioner, just like all philosophers have been. People who are not afraid of asking hard questions, difficult, troubling questions, sometimes. Yeah. And and being willing to let those, as I say in my classes, let those questions hang in the air. Just just let them just let them float, because no one can really find the full complete answer. Right. You know, it's more like you know you learn something, you relate to it for a while, and then you move on. And you come to other ones. One question leads to another question. Mm-hmm. So, so this is one thing that I often come back to. We talked about distractions. The greatest distraction I think that we have is theology. Mm-hmm. And think about it. I mean, I studied thick theology books for years, and mm-hmm. we loved that stuff. Oh, yeah, Christology, theology, <laughs> yeah. all the ologies and stuff. And, of course, the Bible, digging, digging into that, too. But regardless of where people come out, I mean, who knows? Who knows the mind of God, you know, if you're going to use that language? You know, who can claim that they know anything substantial to express? You know, this is, this is who God is. This is what God feels. This is what God thinks. But if you listen to what a lot of evangelicals say and fundamentalists say, you know, they, they know this is what God thinks. This is what God feels. Mm-hmm. This, is God, this is what God wants for me. And guess what? This is what God wants for you. Yes. And I'll tell you what that is. So to me, that, all that stuff, what does that do? It becomes an obstacle. And it distracts us from what we could be doing mm. with a humanistic, naturalistic outlook yes. that's that's more relational yes. rather than, oh, my relation is up there. You know, it's up yes. it's up in the sky or it's in another realm, it's in another world. And and it's uh, it's all about, well, are you gonna go to heaven or not? Well, mm. I go back I go back to my my secular saint uh, John Muir, uh, who who said, "Well, you know, we don't know if there's a heaven, but it's it can be heaven here, it can be hell here too, mm-hmm. but but there's so much beauty in the world, so much beauty, and we're a part of that. So there's beauty in people too. Mm-hmm. So rather than focusing on on the morality issues, on the do you believe correct." kind of issues, the orthodoxies, the traditional stuff. Um, You focus on those things, you miss the point. You miss the whole point. The whole point. When I I was, I'll just say that when I was the um, parish associate in a Presbyterian church for those years, uh, the pastor who became a close friend of mine, he's passed away now, but he had a great outlook. He would say to the congregation, 
the worship is over, let the service begin. Mm, right? I love that. We're so used to saying, well, I went to the service. There's a church service. I went to the worship service. Well, he split those up and he said, you know, the worship part, the hour of worship is over. The service begins. And, you know, such a simple concept. And yet I think, and yeah, and and so much of the church, I think so much of the church has missed that opportunity to say, okay, we, we enjoy gathering together once a week to do this and praise God and pray and sing and do all these things. And that's worship. And then after that hour, it's something else. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just our daily lives. Mm-hmm. But maybe what's, what really matters is our daily lives. Maybe that's an you know? important part of it. Yeah. <laughs> or the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. The whole yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I love that you talk about theology as a distraction because I remember being in Bible college and uh, women were not allowed to take theology classes at the Bible college I attended. And oh. that was a huge point of contention for me. Mm. I did not like that very much. Yeah. Um, but I remember sitting at tables and listening to men, right? Because that was my place. Mm-hmm. And just listening to them argue and fight and just spend hours and hours breaking apart the tiniest concept and trying to decide who was right and who was wrong. And, you know, and I remember sitting there at one point and thinking, this is one of the dumbest experiences I've ever had in my life. <laughs> just to put it crudely, just like, this is mm-hmm. so ridiculous. I, yeah, this is the most yeah. pointless thing I have ever sat around. Sure. Meanwhile, there are lives happening all around us. Mm. And like, there's so much going on and we're in this tiny little bubble having these tiny little conversations and there's a mountain over there. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, and I just resonate so much with the idea of not getting lost in the haystack looking for a little needle, but yes. instead looking at the field that the hay is coming from and thinking what a wonderful thing mm-hmm. and connecting with that. And I just, I have this, if I have any theology, it is this. It's that if it's not big enough for everyone, for all of time in the whole world to connect to, then it's probably not the only way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it can't possibly be. That would be the cruelest joke and not even a joke. It would just be cruel yes. if that were the case. And that's where I think the nature piece comes in for me. Because mm-hmm. if there's something we all have to connect to, it's what we're a part of. And that's nature. And we're part of that cycle. And I think the church does, a lot of churches, I should say, do a really good job of starting by disconnecting you from yourself, right? That's the uh-huh. first nature they're really good at separating you from and trying to correct. Oh, yeah. Quote, quote. Oh, yeah. And then that just kind of becomes a rock rolling downhill collecting moss of everything mm-hmm. else that it disconnects you from, whether right. that's the natural world. Um, I was recently in. Very fortunate to be in Washington hiking in Mount Rainier. Oh, and I, it was beautiful. It was majestic. It was mm-hmm. powerful. And I was hiking way further than I thought I could go. And I'm all of a sudden, like, so close to Mount Rainier, I'm touching the snow. And I just had this moment of clarity because I was just experiencing it and, the, and how 
magical it was to be there with these people and with this person that I love very dearly. And I was so moved. I was crying. Like it was a whole experience, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it hit me that in uh, 10, 15 years ago, I would have been standing in that spot and trying to course correct that emotional experience to say, oh, how majestic is this one way of God and how lucky am I that he put me here. And and I it hit me that like I have a much more rich and full emotional life and connection to the world around me now than mm-hmm. I ever did then when I was trying to always stay in those bounds. And how beautiful is that? Yeah. And how much more connected am I to the world and to my community and to other people? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not always trying to see if they fit and if I can course correct them too. And it's just, it was a waterfall moment for me uh, of understanding and appreciation Mm. for what a broader understanding of the world can bring you Uh, and how uh much beauty Uh that lets in. And I just, when Mm. we were first talking, I remember resonating with you so much on the nature aspect of spirituality and a connection to something greater. And that's really my connection to something greater is the natural world and community. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's such a big part of your story, and that John Muir is a secular mm-hmm. saint for you. I think that's oh, really, yeah. oh, really yeah. neat. Well, you mentioned beauty, and and uh, one of my favorite quotes from him in his journals is he says, uh, he says the greatest or the best synonym for God is beauty. Mm, I yeah. love that. I really enjoy that because. It it pushes out these definitions. Everybody has their definition of what does God mean? What does all that stuff mean? A spiritual spirit, spirit, and those kinds of things. And you know, I taught a class um, not long ago on Carl Sagan, the astronomer Carl Sagan, and he he was fascinated with religion, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, it was one of those kind of people like John Muir. In another way, I mean, John Muir was much more on the on the earth and Carl Sagan was much more out in the cosmos, which is great, mm-hmm. too. It's yeah. all part of nature. And, you know, he was always kind of trying to help religious people to stretch their image more of, of what that means. You know, if we have, you know, billions and billions of galaxies, not just stars, but galaxies, you know, it's 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 kind of big. (laughs) It's pretty vast. It's huge. It's huge. It's all huge. So if you, if you have a kind of a little image, a a shrunken image of God, you know, to where, you know, I mean, I just taught a class on um, Christian nationalism and Mm. we're talking about people who want to put, we got to get God back in the schools and get prayer back in the schools and get the Bible back in the schools and all this kind of stuff. And they say, you know, they claim that the Supreme Court, you know, threw God out of, out of you know, expelled God back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's not, what kind of God is that? <laughs> right. That you, you know, that you can expel God from school. How did that happen? Or that mm-hmm. you can't, you can't pray in school just because a teacher can't get up and say a prayer. So I, you know, I see one of the greatest pushbacks to narrow thinking and the stuff that that to the extreme leads to something like Christian nationalism. I see that as um, uh, the the best way to educate people is to keep saying, well, how, how big, how big can you think? 
Mm-hmm. And and the the way we can do that is as free thinkers and humanistic free thinker secular people is to say, um, look at nature, look at nature, go to the to the mountains, um, take a walk in the forest, be it by the ocean, take a walk by the river, whatever it is, stand, sit in your garden or walk in your garden. Mm-hmm. I mean, pay attention, pay attention to the wonder and the beauty of the natural world. And it might just give some hints to for you to learn how to be a better human being and to feel more interconnected, not just with the natural world, but also these natural beings we call human, mm-hmm. you know, and with ourselves, with ourselves yes. too, and the, the goodness and the beauty within ourselves. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an idealist. I, I'm a realist in terms of, you know, human frailty and the fact mm-hmm. that we we're messing this world up so badly uh, that we're because we've forgotten. We've forgotten our wider connections to each other and to the the, the creatures we share the planet with. I, you know, we live here in North Carolina, and um, we're in this uh, near the Smoky Mountains, but we're in, in the Blue Ridge Mountains here, and. Almost every day, you know, we're seeing the black bears walking by mm-hmm. and the bobcats and the coyotes and all these different species of birds. And it's it's a wonderful experience to be kind of getting a front row seat to what's nature doing. Yeah. And I'm every day being challenged to pay attention more. And you know what? It connects back with all those years ago and all through my ministry time of presence being the, if you're present, you're paying attention and you're yes. learning what's going on around you. Well, if there are not so many people around, there's more wildlife, then you pay attention. And what can I learn from them? How can I listen to them more yeah. and gain knowledge of myself and the wider human community? So that, that's, that's an important important part of it for me. And I, I also, you were talking about the being up by Mount Rainier, which is, of course, my, my home area up there in the Seattle area. But it also made me think of, of Muir when he went to Alaska. Mm. And John Muir went to Alaska quite often. And one time when he was going up there, he went on a steamship, a steamboat, up to the fjords up there in Alaska. And he just happened to be on board with a group of, of missionaries and they were going up to, you know, bring the good news to all those poor pagan, right. heathen, uh, dirty people. Na- native people yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they had their Bibles. They were singing their hymns and all that kind of stuff. Well, Muir was steeped in that because he been raised. He was raised in that kind of culture, but he had already emerged himself. He had already, he'd already been there and gone down the trail further. Anyway, so he they get up there and. He said, as soon as the steamship came into the harbor and they saw the mountains of Alaska, he said, he said, suddenly the hymns and the Bible readings and the theology and everything just faded away. And they were awestruck by the beauty of those mountains. And in, in John Muir's description, he said, nature's Bible was open. For them. I love I, that. Yeah, isn't that great? Isn't that, that is great. great. That is great. Yeah. And it's such a stark contrast from 
how I spent the first 21 years of my life in fundamentalism. I, I actually remember being in a in an English class and we were reading Wordsworth and I am a the Wordsworth junkie. It happened. I was a literature major. I'm mm-hmm, a huge fan. Mm-hmm. And I remember her teaching us that Wordsworth had a great appreciation for nature. And while that's okay, he worshiped nature and nature is not God. And so this is actually a very um, sinful way. And so we don't need to idolize Wordsworth. And I remember sitting there and thinking, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, how is that not a form of worship to creator? If you're, if you're appreciating the creation and I just, I love that. My yeah. life has come so far that you and I are sitting here and having this completely sure. opposite conversation. It's such a <laughs> thing, and I think probably right. uh, similarly for you too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really, really special. I'd love for you to tell our listeners more about some of your books and projects and things, uh, ways they might be able to connect with you outside of this episode. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, you know, after that Muir book, I continued and, and ended up with a six book series of essentially nature meditations, uh, uh, various thoughts from uh, people like Thoreau, Emerson, Margaret Fuller, John Burroughs, who's another one of my my secular saints, um, Walt Whitman. I've taught a class on Walt Whitman too. He's he's great. Uh, his poetry as well as his is universalistic kind of view of things, connection with nature, powerful stuff. And after that, I, I did write, I started writing some things about my chaplaincy years. Um, there's a book that I actually am quite proud of in a way. I go back and read it every now and then. Uh, my address is a river. Mm. My address is a river. And it's a collection of about 70 or so short stories of my chaplaincy experiences over the years are all true stories. And I think that if a person read My Address is a River, probably get a pretty good encapsulation of everything I've been talking about today, what we've been discussing. Yeah. Uh, be- because really that that was the heart of my emergence from from faith uh, and and from more of that narrow understanding. And and since that time, I've really enjoyed the fact that we came back, we moved from the Bay Area back here in North Carolina uh, about seven years ago now. And about that time, uh, yeah, I was noticing in the newspaper, there was a religion section in our local newspaper. And I wrote to the publisher and I said, well, or the editor, and I said, I said, well, I have this background in ministry and chaplaincy and, and interfaith work. And I see that most of your articles in the religion page are all conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. And I have a different perspective and I'd like to share that, you know, and and write some things. So they they actually took the risk and said, yeah, go give it a try. Seven years ago, and I have written a column for the newspaper for the last seven years every week. There's a column in the paper every week. And now it's in the USA Today network. So I'm hearing from Texas. I'm hearing from New England. I hear from Colorado. I hear from Mississippi and Pennsylvania. I've been hearing from people who are reading these articles who are saying, they're either saying, you know, thank you. It's great to see this. It's Mm -hmm. great to see it in the religion pages, this kind of a thing. And other people, of course, 
are a little troubled by some of it. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I'm approaching topics, subjects, issues of faith from a secular perspective, but without being anti-religious, without being, without putting people down. Right. And I think that really resonates with a lot of people. So what I do is after I've written 40 or 50 of these columns, I say, okay, I'm going to publish them. So I slap them together and collect them and publish a book. So I think I'm up to 28 books now because I just keep doing this over and over <laughs> again. And I love it. I love the process. I love, right. you know, I mean, it's easy for people to publish uh, books now. Uh, and and so, I mean, without going through the big publishers, it's, they're self-published, but it's it's really um, it's really fun for me to do that, and I've got a couple other ones coming up. But the last one I published was uh, humanist meditations, humanist mm-hmm. meditations. So it's mm-hmm. kind of, in a sense, it's kind of like literal bookends from John Muir book at the beginning with meditations of John Muir, and now humanist meditations. Uh, but I keep going. I'm not going to stop. I keep writing these things every week, and I'm I'm going to keep publishing books. And I should say here that Carol, Carol, my wife Carol, is a Presbyterian minister. She decided to stay in the church, and I left. And she's fine with that. Uh, And we've been together now for a number of years. And do we have some differences of belief? Of course we do. Um, But it really doesn't, it, it hasn't been a barrier for us. And let me just say, because I, I love to tell this story, and I've, I've written about it too. Yeah. Uh, when when we got married, we got married uh, because we had so many friends in the interfaith community. She was the director of a large interfaith council in California. I was a member of that council. We met each other as she was doing some chaplaincy work, and I was too. So we eventually got together and decided, well, we love each other. Let's get married. <laughs> so we so we did, and. And we got married at a Zen Buddhist center uh, there in California, the Bay Area. Uh Uh, You could say, oh, that's a very California thing to do. Yeah, I guess it was. But, you know, here she was at that point, she was still a minister, still Christian. And here I am, the secular guy who was, you know, doing his work, uh, more social work kind of stuff. And so we got married at the Zen Buddhist center and there were four officiants and they were all our friends. And we wanted, you know, we, we had so many friends in the community that we wanted to bring them into it. So we had four officiants. One was a Christian minister friend of ours. One was a Zen Buddhist priest. One was a Jewish rabbi. And one was a Wiccan witch. Wow. Fun. A Wiccan witch. All four of them. And you know what the clincher is? All women. Oh, I love it. That's a dream marriage ceremony for me. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. I love that. And be, and be, and because of that kind of work that we did over the years, the the crowd that was there in the Zendo at the mm-hmm. Zen Center, um, there were evangelicals there. We had family members who were who were wondering why are there big statues of Buddha here, you know, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing, and yeah. and Catholics and. Um, Jews and Sufis and Wiccans 
And it was just, it was so cool. And it was a celebration of love, but it was also a celebration of all the work that we'd done over the years as chaplains, as ministers, as human beings who love people. And I and that really was that. the foundation. Yeah, it was good, great I celebration. I love that. Great. You brought your whole life into this moment, which is such an important thing in marriage, I think. And that's... Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's one of the mm. coolest wedding stories I've ever heard. I'm so glad you shared mm. that with us. I love that. And of course, I, I met you because I know Carol through her Enneagram yeah. work at Grace yeah. So yeah. It's really neat. And I've enjoyed knowing you both. It's been a real pleasure. And mm-hmm. What a great conversation we've had today. I really appreciated this. It's been, it's a great way to, for those of you who are listening, it's Monday morning. It's a great way to start a week. Sure is. I'm very fond of it. Um, So we've reached the point in the episode that I have a a love-hate relationship with because it's the end, but I love these questions and I'm excited to hear your answers. So if you will, please tell me, what is something you see clearly now that you didn't see before when you were the most immersed in the traditional faith that you grew up in? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard not to respond in the, with pretty much summarizing everything I've been talking about. We've yeah. talked about today because I, I compiled a book uh, a few years ago, and I, I've always been clear on this for myself, and I finally put it into a book form and the title is Nature is Enough. Um, so I think what I what I see now that I didn't see in the past is that there doesn't need to be a super nature. Anything above, beyond, behind, beneath the natural cosmos. Uh, and and that is an eye opener because it yes. literally opens your eyes to the to the beauty that you can call God, you can call it, you know, call it, um, call it what it is, call it just everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's, I guess that's one way I would say it. Mm, I love that because it is such an eye opener. Yeah. It's, it's a magical experience to connect with the world around you. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And our last question today is what have been some of your greatest moments of joy in rebuilding your beliefs and your life after leaving hmm. your faith? Yeah, those great. that's a good question. I, I, I find so much joy in my teaching uh, when, when a student will come to me and say, well, I've, I've never heard these things before. I've never, um, I never knew I was a free thinker until you mm-hmm. described what that is. Um, I never knew... Uh, that I could question my faith, mm. um, and and those amazing moments when I can teach an entire class and be upfront in every way about the fact that I am a humanist secular person, mm. and someone will come up to me and say, "Well, I'm not sure if you're a Christian or not, or, <laughs> or what your religion is, but I appreciate what you teach." Uh, and that comes out in my in my columns too. So I, those are the joys, and I can't I can't end this without saying the joy of of talking over all of these things with my wonderful wife Carol, mm. and the love and the joy that we that we feel in our relationship 
with our differences of belief uh, and sharing the foundation of of our love of nature and um, you know our running to the windows together to see our bobcat walking oh. by yeah uh, I love things that. like moments like that uh, just as precious as can be so thanks mm. for asking that question yeah those moments really are precious yeah yeah Well, Chris, thank you so much again for being here and for having this phenomenal, vulnerable, and just beautiful conversation with me this morning. I appreciate it. Very meaningful. Thank you so much for for having me, and, and you're doing great work. Oh, thank you. You as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.